This is The Mystical Positivist, a radio show dedicated to the application of reason and the pursuit of spiritual practice and development. It consists of commentary, book reviews, interviews, and discussion in and around the local and larger spiritual community. The thesis of the show is that rationality is in no way the antithesis of deep mystical experience. In fact, we assert that it is a necessary ally. I'm your host, Stuart Goodnick. Joining me in the following presentation is my co-host, Dr. Robert Schmidt. Rob is the director of Taiyu Meditation Center and founder with myself and Jim Wilson of Mini Rivers Books and Tea in Sebastopol, California. This week on the show, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Fiona Denzi, a longtime practitioner and teacher of the Gurdjieff movements. Born into the work, Ms. Denzi's parents were founding members of the Gurdjieff Foundation of Toronto, Society for Arts and Ideas. At an early age, she was introduced to the Gurdjieff movements and received direct training from Mr. Gurdjieff's designated movements teachers, Alfred Etyavan and Jesmyn Howarth. Miss Denzi's mother, Elsa, was an accomplished pianist who worked with many musicians from all over the world in a series of seminars exploring how to accompany sacred dance. Fiona Denzi herself has over 50 years of experience in the direct communication of Mr. Gurdjieff's movements. Of the Gurdjieff movements, the Foundation of Toronto writes, In the early years of his search, Gurdjieff spent time in various hidden monasteries and temples in Central Asia, where he experienced ritual dances and ceremonies. In studying their essential structure, he came to understand that these dances were being used as a language to express knowledge of a cosmic order. This language was a very exact one. Everything in it is measured, every movement has its right place, duration, and weight. Combinations and sequences are mathematically calculated. Positions are arranged to produce definite, predetermined emotions or states. In the creation of such movements, every small element matters. Each detail has meaning. Nothing is left to chance. Nothing is the result of mere imagination. There is only one possible gesture, attitude, and rhythm to represent a given human or cosmic situation. Another gesture, another movement, would strike a false note would not produce the impression of truth. Should there be the slightest miscalculation in the composition, the truth is altered, the dance desecrated, and fantasy has taken the place of knowledge. In a lifetime devoted to study and questioning, Gurdjieff mastered the principles of this art and was able in his turn to use the movements as a vehicle for the transmission of his understanding. Fiona Denzi, welcome to The Mystical Positivist. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Well, thank you for uh, uh, be, making yourself available uh, for this uh, conversation. And I'll begin um, with the, our first question, as I do, as we've come to do um, with all first-time guests, and that is to invite you to cast your mind back to childhood and youth, and in so doing, uh, to look for any moments, any experiences that in retrospect, you could say, prefigured your engagement with, in this case, the Gurdjieff movements or the Gurdjieff work more generally, or um, your adult life, your career. So uh, does anything come up in response to that invitation? Yes. Um, I consider myself to be quite lucky fortunate because my parents were in the work. They founded the work in London, England in the early 
in the 50s, and they immigrated to Canada. And they, their search was very deep for them. And they started the Gurdjieff Foundation of Toronto um, with some other people in around 1956. So I was about five at the time. So I, would, I had always been around the influence of um, the search and specifically the Gurdjieff system, although my parents were interested in many other um, things, um, Vedanta, Zen, uh, Buddhism, Sufism. And um, by the time I was eight, they were going to intensive periods or creating their own intensive periods here in Toronto with the group. And as an eight-year-old, I was you know, running around wondering what strange things these adults were doing. And I think my sister, who's three years older than I, we saw our parents doing movements just through the cracks in a barn. <laughs> we weren't allowed in as children, but uh, we would sneak peeks through holes in the barn boards and wondering, wonder what on earth they were doing looked ridiculous to us. We were, of course, into ballet as children, and uh, thought we would never want to do any of those silly movements. And then uh, when I was 10, I went to a work period uh, with other children around the world. In fact, it was an international work period. People came from groups all over the world, um, Europe, South America. And I was one of the youngest children there, and we started movements. So that was the first time I actually was in a class of movements, and I was instantly smitten. It was just, to me, something authentic about it, something connected about it, something real. Um, it allowed a certain um, expression, if I could use that word, which I will have to explain later. Um, that, that, that dance, the dance that I had been involved in, didn't allow. And as a child, it was completely um, taken by, by the truth of it somehow, both my sister and I. And then, you know, we continued after that with regular movements, classes, um, and we were visited about every five or six weeks by Alfred Etivan from Paris, and Alfred was, um, at the time, Gurdjieff's designated person responsible for movements. So at a very young age, we received the movements with a very, very strong vibration from someone who was who received it from Mr. Gurdjieff. And um, not just the movements, but... You know, as a child, any of those questions that I had as a child, why is the world so strange and why does everybody seem to be so, I don't know, there's a sleep, mechanical, um, you know, what's wrong? Um, I could speak with my parents about that. I could speak with other um, senior people in the work, with Louise Welsh, who was there, be sure at the time. And no one said that I was crazy or I was 
Um, it's strange that uh, the questions were invited or accepted and was never judged about it. So um, the work was always, um, it seemed right to me or for me from the very beginning. And as a teenager, I think there was an exploration into various things because I was a teenager in the 60s, which was a big exploratory time. And um, my friends had a lot of questions. And for some reason, uh, I seemed to be able to respond to their questions um, that they had about search and about uh, what they were reading at the time, you know, Siddhartha and um, these kinds of material. And that made me feel even more that what um, the path I was interested in and my parents were interested in and that other people we were surrounded with were, um, there was something good about it. So that's, that's really, in a way, you know, children who are, we, we're called in the work, work brats, <laughs> because you know, growing up in the work, you're a little less, um, a little more irreverent, I would say, than um, other young people who come. Um, I think we're very fortunate, but sometimes we don't really appreciate what it is that we've um, come across because we don't have to do the same kind of search for it uh, that people have to do later in their, when they're in their twenties or thirties or forties. We're immersed in it. And then there's sometimes a a time of rebellion. Um, But for me, the rebellion lasted about a day, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you are remarkable indeed. (laughs) Parents said, um, uh, we're going to a day's work and, um, you know, we're leaving in five minutes. And, and I said, I'm not coming. I think it was 16. I said, I'm not coming. You know, I'm gonna, I have other important things to do and stay home. And they said, fine. <laughs> Off they went with my sister. I was at home by myself. And after about an hour of enjoying being home by myself, I thought, what have I done? <laughs> And I, they're all at their work day, and I'm here doing nothing. And well, I, I really want to go to the work day. So that lasted the day. <laughs> back in. Got it. Well, your uh, your description of of, of this early uh, engagement and even love, it sounds like, uh, for the work, is interesting to me because you described your. Your parents, as as of course being involved um, uh, quite uh, strongly in the work, and they were also interested in these other paths that you that you outlined a moment ago. And I'm wondering if you had a similar kind of exploration outside the Gurdjieff work, or um, or were you more or less um, from that early age, um, focused on the movements, the Gurdjieff work, et cetera? I was certainly from an early age focused on the movements because I had um, a, a love for them, of course, and I had some facility and I was encouraged. 
um, but as a um, as a young person, our house was always full of books of of other um, what do you call them other disciplines with um, other seekers. We had quite an extensive library of which we were encouraged to read. My parents were very open about um, the fact that the work isn't the only <clears throat> way, it's not the only game in town, so to say, and that if the truth is the truth is the truth, if it's based on something ancient, there are also other um, paths that are based on the same um, truths. And if I was interested in exploring any of those, my parents were perfectly open to um, for that to happen. They never gave us any sense that we had to do this. They were interested in it. We needed to, to it was they were completely, um, they're not judgmental about um, what anyone else felt or believed. My parents are very open that way. <clears throat> my, my mother was Catholic, raised Catholic, my father, Church of England, so that was already a thing between them. <laughs> so um, they were just interested in exploring to the ideas. And when I looked at other things or I read other things or I went to um, church with some of my extended family, I always found something in these other paths that was included in the work. And the longer I was in the work, the more that I realized how complete a system it is, that there really is everything in it. And there's something for your mind. There are ideas for your mind. The movements themselves are extraordinary. The music is extraordinary. Um, The ideas about laws and the working together, the practical work. Um, to me, it included everything, and I didn't think that it needed anything, and I didn't see why anybody would want to add anything to, to the work. It seems like one doesn't have enough time in one's lifetime to really look at all the aspects of the work and really study all of it. Because So I considered it such a complete teaching that I never really... Um, I never really wanted to spend any serious time, I would say. Got it. Thank you. So, um, so another uh, point occurs to me, which is, which is that your engagement with the work, as you pointed out, was um, from a very young age. And, and I'm wondering, not necessarily focusing on your own experience, but on your observation of other um, brats, as you call them, or, or, or not necessarily brats, but other very, very young people engaging with the work. I'm wondering if you, how you, how you would distinguish the engagement of, of those people who encountered it uh, at a very young age um, compared with people who come to the work in their adult life? Well, it's an interesting question because just because you encounter it at a young age doesn't mean that you will stay in it even. And Mm -hmm. 
lot of, uh, I would say, people that I knew at the time who, who I was with as a child are no longer in the work and don't have any interest in it. And it could be because of that idea that they didn't search for it. They didn't look for it. They didn't come. To, they didn't start at this place where they're dissatisfied in life and looked at a number of other things and finally came to the work on their own. Um, so I don't think just because you grew up in the work or exposed at an early age that it's any better. It might even be not better. Um, the only thing for me or my age the only thing that I think that I'm really grateful for is that because I started so young there was still a very very strong vibration from me to just start in the when my parents and my family became involved. So <clears throat> at that time in the 50s, the, uh, the vibration was very, very strong. And the movements that we received <clears throat> were very strong. They went into And there are very few people still around who um, have that experience because everyone started older, of course. There may be... You, even in their early teens, though, or their late teens, um, there are very few of us left. And uh, that I consider to be a real gift. I'm very lucky that I started with the NSA And you're very impressionable when you're young, of course. Yes, thank you. So do you see... They went into me so strongly that they're like yesterday, Sort of, it kind of they, they kind of came from Alfred Etimos solar plexus and just went straight into my solar plexus and without anything between in that that way. So, um, but that's it's unusual. It's an interesting question. Uh, so today, do you find that they, um, you know, that 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 power is still present or has it gone down a, a level you know do, is there a i don't know is that's part of the challenge i know that people speak about with the work is how to how to maintain the uh level of energy that it was first transmitted with no it's i think it's there's no question that it's uh, dissipated tremendously it's nearly gone in the movements it, uh, it's only it's only there in the movements when uh, the the classes are um, involve people who have been in that vibration for a long time. People from um, Paris and uh, London, New York, or, or South America who who still have a bit of that connection. But if you didn't get that connection. Um, if you learn movements from somebody who learned from somebody who learned from somebody, or if you learned movements from notes or from your uh, copying of film that you saw, if you're lifting movements from the film, there is not none of that vibration. It just doesn't exist. So 
Well, I think in the whole work, of course, this is the question for the work at the moment. I don't know if you agree with that, but the question at the moment is how can the work be renewed and how we can, how can we find a new form and a new energy and how can we make it the work ours without making it personal or subjective. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a new, there needs to be a new arising and everyone is searching for that because the, the vibration from Gurdjieff is, um, has certainly dissipated by now. Yeah, it is a, a question that comes up in a number of the circles that where we have conversations. Uh, it's, and, and, and has come up in conversations we've had on this podcast as well, of course. Yes, it's a big concern. What will, how will, uh, what will keep the work alive or um, not keep it alive, but um, renew it, bring it alive again? And the movements, uh, unfortunately, the movements have gone out now to the general public. And there are wonderful um, classes all over the world that do them brilliantly, completely empty. And that's very, that's very sad. Their, their, um, their positions are beautiful, but uh, there's, a, there's a vibration that's um, not there. And that's a big concern. That that's understandable, and so so I'm wondering, um, as you would, I, I, my my supposition from what you've said is that is that y- you would see some of your role as communicating that vibration in the cla- in the movements that you teach. I assume is that is that a fair I, summary? I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. That's that's. Uh... That is my my aim, my wish. It's the most difficult thing, of course, to to, to try to be in touch with this uh, vibration, which is a, such a higher quality, and it requires, um, it, you know, in a way, it requires a certain training. Mm-hmm. If you mm-hmm. this training. To, to how to work in a certain way um, with a movements class, then it's nearly impossible, I think, to go on. And part of the problem is that there are many movements instructors who are not trained to instruct. They, they just go uh, class or they think, they think, oh, I know that movement, I can do that, I can show that, and then they show it. You don't really understand what's behind it. or um, So they're not really trained to do that. And I think people don't even realize that there is training uh, to, well, that, to bring the very specific thing. Sorry. So, so that, that's a, a, a very interesting question because some of the material that you recommended that we read that were early descriptions of the movements speak very coherently about uh, inner posture, uh, inner, inner posture of attention and, and presence in the body as a way of 
allowing a higher energy of some form to come into the body, or, or at least first to have contact, have, have that energy have contact in the body. And that seems to me from what I was reading to be a fundamental aspect of the practice as opposed to doing these dance movements. <laughs> and so, so am I hearing you say that as the movements have been replicated in different, um, uh, you know, situations that there's been a tendency to focus on the form as opposed to the, the content? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is, this is that's a very long conversation. But yes, that, that's what's taking place. And I, I feel sad for the people, in a way, who, um, who are working in these classes because they obviously have an interest and a love for that, for this uh, material. And it's certainly fun to do and interesting to do. And like any aerobic exercise, it generates some energy. And you, you are in a better state when you go in, uh, when you come out, than when you go in. But movements are not just that. And in a sense, that's just the very, very beginning. Very, you know, that's the first level of what movements are and what they can bring to you. And I've heard people say, well, I, you know, I can bring my attention, I can bring my sensation. So what makes it different from you know, a good dance class or a good yoga class where you're bringing your attention to your, your posture and your sensation. Yes, it's a good question. What is the difference? Because movements are not only that. They're so, so much bigger than that. I have a huge respect for movements, and especially as a trained dancer, and I have a love of dance, but I would never compare them because the movements are teaching on their own. Um, and it's not just that, well, they're there to help you connect to a higher vibration, but first and foremost, they are designed, the way Mr. Kajif designed them, First of all, to harmonize your centers. Unless your centers are harmonized, you're not going to be able to connect to anything higher. So the state in which we are is disconnected. We, we, if we accept the fact that the, the vibration of the vibrational energy of my mind is not connected to the vibrational energy of my body, these things are not actually able to meet. So in movements, Mr. Gajeev has designed it so that these two energies start to um, become related. And then when they're related, then the energy of the emotional center can appear. And then I can have an experience of a certain kind. But where I am now is that I am more balanced and more harmonious. Then 
the real work and movements begins, begins. Many instructors, if you if you're not in a sense trained, then you don't know where else to go with that. So people can at least feel um, more balanced. They can leave the movements class feeling, oh, I, I gained something from that. I received something from that. But whether you will ever experience what the movements means or what it's about, what it's based on, um, is questionable. You need another, there's another level in movements. Movements are on another um, they're, they're on another level above ordinary life. Well, that, that's that's very interesting. And I'm sorry. Go ahead. You first of all, have to get to ordinary life. I mean, the balance. Yeah. Mm. And mostly the uh, movements that I see on the internet and all over the place, um, they're beautifully done, but they're not even a, a, a balanced ordinary life because they're because they're brilliantly mechanical. This mm. brilliant moving centers, um, you know, well coordinated. Um, Everyone's related to everyone in a, the row, and it's beautiful to look at, but it, it doesn't, they don't vibrate because there isn't, the vibration doesn't happen. And I feel very sad about that because there's so many people who are really interested in the movements, and there's, there isn't that kind of instrument. So, sorry. No, no, no. I'm, uh, I'm, uh... As, as you were speaking, I was reminded of, of, of a sentence in the uh, piece by uh, Martha de Gagneron. I, I may be, you know, uh, massacring her, her pronunciation of her name. But, but the sentence was, have we forgotten that the perception of a higher energy is natural to a human being? And I think, and, and, and so I guess one of the things that's coming up in response to what you've just said um, about the training necessary is that I wonder if, if the recognition that there is an aim in being able to operationalize this natural propensity of human, of the human body and the human being to um, uh, be sensitive to higher energy and even open to um, the tran the, um, circulation of higher energies. Um, I'm wondering, is that part of what might be missing in the, in the situation that you describe and, and lament? It's, it's absolutely what's missing. And in a way, it's, uh, it's very much the same thing that we try to do in Gurdjieff sittings. Our connection to the high energy is, yes, it's our birthright, it is, it, it is our birthright. We, we, mm -hmm. It's for us. But we need to, first of all, harmonize on the level. To, we need to get to the level of the planet, first of all, which we're not. So that's what we try to do in sitting, for example, which we're trying to come to that uh, relationship so that one can be open to the higher energy. It takes a lot of work to cut to the place just to be open to higher energy. Mm -hmm. so always 
telling us we're not um, the higher energy looking for us. It's looking, it's looking for us, but it can't find us. It can't see us because we don't appear. You know, we don't appear to it. We're not, and then we're not available. Maybe the higher energy could see you, but we're already full, so there's nowhere for it to enter. So we're not available. So there's a lot of hard work to be available. And in movements, there's there's the hard work of connecting just our um, our at least three centers to be available then for for something that's higher and. In most places, the movements always stop short of that if they get to that point. Um, often don't even get to that point. So this is a bit of this, the state of where we are with movement. Do you see that as a consequence of perhaps people focusing just on like either the movements or just on reading bells above or just on sittings and not bringing the whole corpus together? Or is it something different, like a, just a loss of a connection to the notion of the sacred? I think it's, I think it's both. We see so much now, um, people, <clears throat> they like one aspect of the work. You know, they like the ideas, for example, and then it's off to <clears throat> an identification with ideas and <clears throat> writing many books about them, which is very nice, but it's one aspect. And then people like the movements, let's face it, the movements give you something that the other aspects don't because um, they're a real gift. And Mr. Pajif worked very hard to put together the music and the movements to give you a certain, to bring you to a certain place. And so um, <clears throat> people just take away the movements and just to work only on the, the movements. And we forget that movements are connected to life. What, how you are in a movements class is exactly how you are in life. If you watch how you are in a movements class, I, I disagree with the instructor. Uh, how long is this class going on? Or, you know, I've got things to do. And, you know, why are we going over and over and over the same displacement when I already got it and everybody else doesn't? And all these things that go on inside are exactly the same things that I do in my life. But I really have the opportunity to see them in movements. If I can see them and, um, and really feel them deeply, then I can take that experience into my life and maybe I can change something in my life about that. And if I see something in my life, how I am in life, I can bring that into the movements class. And they work together. Movements are for your life. They are, in fact, they are your life. They're representations of your life. There are movements that represent aspects of your life. They represent laws. They represent processes in your life. There are prayers. There are movements for women, very specific women's work. There are movements for men that's very specific. 
So they are about your life. They're not separate. So just to learn movements and do movements and not take um, advantage of what you what you learn in movements, when you experience movements into your life, it's it's you know it's unfortunate because it, the teaching it's all it all works together. So when you remove movements and without um, an interest in what's behind them or why, then you lose a whole. From what I was hearing you say, and from uh, it called up a word that was used in one of the essays about this, the aesthetic relationship uh, to the movements, and because the movements have such an artistic element to them that it's very natural for people to relate to them aesthetically, but an aesthetic relationship takes you to a certain level, but also serves as a kind of a block to the allowing of something higher to enter in because the aesthetic has a certain egoic quality to it because there's an appreciation and a self that's appreciating and a, an appreciation of one's appreciation that becomes a, if a, a subtle sort of uh, layer that, as you put it before, prevents the higher energy from having a point of contact or a point of entering in. So do you see that a way to describe what's happened with the broadening popularity of the movements is that there's a tendency to substitute the aesthetic for the sacred. Absolutely. I think, and I think you put that very, very succinctly. Yes. We get fooled that the beauty of the movements and um, what I, what I feel, so to speak, when I, I'm in a movements class, and, and what I feel when I, when I leave is the aim of movements. And that's not the all. You know, the movements themselves, the whole body of work, each individual movement, but the whole body of work is a teaching in itself. All, I, I believe that Mr. Gajeev put his whole teaching in the movements. And If, for example, you take a movement um, that you don't like, and I've and I've come across a few in my my lifetime. I probably know most movements. There are hundreds of them. Some some people say over three hundred. There, you actually like you gravitate gravity to enjoy. There are movements you don't like. There are movements that you have, you know, no feeling one way or the other. But if you take a movement that you don't like and you try to study it, we've been told, or I was told, and from the very beginning, the movement is the teacher, not the person standing in front of the class. The person standing in front of the class just guides what you're going to do in the class and when you're going to stop. But the movement is the teacher. So what does that mean? If I, if I take a movement that I don't like and I try and do it and try to work with it and try and look inside to see why am I resisting this movement? What do I not like about it? Why do I have a reaction to it? 
um, one can start to see certainly something about yourself. You can see maybe it's, it's asking for a certain head work that I need to do. I need to think in a certain way. There's this complicated series of numbers or words in a canon. I don't really want to do it. It's too hard. Or it puts me in a physical position that I just, yeah, it's a bit uncomfortable. It's some tension here. I really like it. Or it moves me. Um, it's a multiplication. It's moving me a little bit too close to the person. So while I'm working with it, I see all these things. I see these reactions. And then if I start to take the, the movement um, well apart, I start to look at the way it's composed. I start to see something about what Mr. Gajif is um, asking you to look at and how he's putting um, this material together in a way that will reveal something to you. And the more that I've done that with uh, certain movements that I've not liked, the more I've found that in the end, I really love these movements. And I love them because... I love them because of um, what of what they're showing, what they're showing me, what they're giving me, um, what they're revealing to me, and I see what a gift they are, and then I like them. because they're so beautiful or they're fun, I fall asleep in. I fall asleep in the, you know, how fun they are. How much, not that you shouldn't enjoy movements for some reason, but, um, you know, the really the work is in um, the study of movements. And one has to be interested in movements, not just to do them. And how many of them can I do and how big it, can my repertoire be? <laughs> For some of the reasons, so, my video is off and it won't. Uh, oh, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, we turned the. Oh, I, I stopped the video because okay. just, just to improve the bandwidth. Okay, I thought it was my computer. No. No, no, it's a deliberate choice. Um, so it's, this is interesting because um, I, you know I really appreciate your discussion of of choosing to focus um, um, your explore, exploration on things you don't like. It it uh, um, it mirrors um, some of the some of the work that is very familiar to to Stuart and I, but. Um, uh, Stuart has uh, formulated as follow your dread, but, um, <laughs> but the point I want to make is that, um, is that you just mentioned that there are these different, many different movements over 300, uh, you said maybe the, the total count. I'm wondering if the movements labeled as prayers have a specific, have in general a specific feeling different than some of the other movements. And if you could perhaps discuss how those have landed with you over the years, 
as you've done them and taught them? Hmm, that's a good question. <clears throat> you know that Mr. Kajif had said that prayer needs to be in three centers. If you can't pray in three centers, that God is not going to hear anything. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> and some of the prayers are the most beautiful, if I could say beautiful, uh, movements. Mm-hmm. They, because for me, when I do them, I have a sense that I am actively praying. That I that I, I can do some active um, work. I don't work's not quite the right word, but that I can make an active contribution to my own wish. And I don't, I think the prayers are extraordinary, but I don't think that they are, mm, that they hold something mm, better, if we could qualify it, than the other movements. Mm -hmm. Uh, They're just different, and they're a different aspect of, um, a, a, a different way to experience a vibration because they're they're slow, they're calm, they're um, the demand is often one that's more um, it's more within the grasp of, of, of most people. They're simpler usually. Doesn't make them simpler to do. I just mean they're, they're more uh, simple. Internally, they require a great deal of active attention. Hmm. A depth of attention. Thank you. Uh, uh, one, one follow-up question on this topic. I've, I've long been interested in the uh, in the topic of prayer, because uh, uh, unlike you, I, I, uh, my uh, uh, childhood exposure to the sacred was through uh, Roman Catholicism, and um, prayer was enjoined, but I never understood why, <laughs> really, <laughs> because the form of prayer was not seemed not to produce what was claimed so um so this so this um description that you that you offer of prayer is interesting to me and i'm and so the follow up question is was there and is there when you're doing those uh, movements labeled prayer a sense of exaltation, a sense of expansion, so that communication to that which is higher can be facilitated. Yes, but that's available in other movements as well. Okay. That's available in, in um, sure. an altercation or in a dervish. But mm-hmm. 
My question to you is, if as a, as a child, for example, mm-hmm. what, was your, um, <clears throat> what would you consider prayer? I mean, children pray in their own way. They have a to the higher moments. And what did you feel as a child was missing? Basically, uh, prayer was... Uh, the thing I did after confession, 10 Hail Marys, 10 Our Fathers, or whatever it happened to be, depending on the gravity of what I reported to the priest. And so, um, and, and so that, I mean, you know, in later years, I've come to appreciate that the word formulas of those prayers have, uh, can, especially the Our Father, can have something very strong and resonant yeah. um, in the words. But as a young child, I encountered it in a context that um, essentially robbed it of the possibility of realizing that I was able to be in touch with something greater. I can say that when I was three years old, I, I, and was at a, uh, um, my mother had brought me to a Roman Catholic high mass. And there, in retrospect, I can say that I had um, a real contact with something higher and, and could call, couldn't call that now prayer. But, um, but at the time, at, at my age, it was simply beyond my intellectual capacity to um, contextualize in the way that I can now. So, so um, but then later, a few years later, um, as I say, prayer was uh, devoid, really, of anything higher. And that was... That was too bad, and that's why that's why it's been a a uh, a subject of inquiry to me. I've asked about prayer um, of many of our uh, guests on this on this show, and so that's why I asked you. You know, what, there's one thing that's interesting about Mr. Bajus' <clears throat> prayers about the words, for example. Um, you were asking, <laughs> Lord, have mercy. You're not praying for something. Hmm. Lord, I, give me this. Lord, I want that. Or um, You're not asking to be given something. You are asking... Um, not asking is not the right word. You are humbling yourself in front of something greater than you, which mm-hmm. is the, the attitude that one should have in front of a women's class when you're trying to bring this material to people. Mm-hmm. Um, that we need to be humble in the face of something that's so, so much greater than us that we don't understand. And in, in class, when I'm working in the class, um, it's not about what I want for me, but that I can find a place inside where I can be uh, 
where I can be uh, open, I suppose is a, is a good word, where I can be open to receive. And then all I'm, all I'm saying, the words are always, um, I wish to be, I wish to be, I can work, Lord, have mercy on me. You know, je suis, I am. I, it's, to me, just that sense alone is very different from what we understand in the secular world about prayer. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I mean, the, the, uh, even the, even the, the very short prayer, the Hail Mary, when I, when I engage in it from, from an open heart, it's a very different experience and feeling and opening uh, to um, to the mechanical rote recitations that I, that I did as a kid, and so um, and and it makes sense to me that 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 this bodily expression in the movements um, would facilitate that. Yes, we I mean, first and foremost need to uh, learn to relax when working in our movements to to let go and let go and let go and let go. Who I think I am, or you know, my preconceived ideas about everything, everybody, myself, to all these things that occupy my energy. You know. To, to relax deeply in so many ways, let go of what I don't need um, so that I, I can be available, that I can make some room inside for something else to come. Otherwise, nothing's possible, and I can do movements beautifully externally, you know, in a sense, perfectly externally, and they'll they give nothing not nothing but they don't give what they could give mm-hmm. um, and in, I, I was told many many years ago that one has to be careful that movements are passed on with the correct uh, weight the correct tempo um, the correct what uh, Justin Howard called tonicity it's uh, tension or lack of tension, um, the the right amount of attention. If one if one can't do that, if if if, if they're not passed on in that way, and they're done without the right um, without the corresponding right's not a good or without the corresponding tempo and weight, then they can actually produce the opposite effect to what they were um, designed for. And that's a little bit of a frightening notion because possibly when they're done without um, the correct posture, the correct sequence of postures, and the correct weight and tonicity, they can produce more mechanicality and not less. So there certainly is a a danger in um, doing movements or even passing on them without having been um, uh, influenced 
by um, by the by the vibration. One needs to, in order to instruct movements, one needs to, needs to have learned a movement from someone who has it in their body. We call it in in your bones, you have to have bones, in order to pass it on. And you receive it from someone who knows it in that way. You do it with others in a class. You work with a movement for a very long time in a class until you have a deep understanding of it. And then perhaps you're able to um, you're able to pass it on. And I think many people who instruct movements at the moment don't even understand that that's that movements are a legomenism. The whole work is a legomenism. It's part of a very old and long um, oral teaching. It's passed from men to someone who knows to someone who receives, and that's how it's passed on. And uh, that's rarely being done. I, I, I have um, uh, a, a, a group that I work with and have a group. There's a group in uh, Moscow uh, that I work with, wonderful, wonderful uh, people. And many of them have been doing movements for you know, 10, 12 years, and only movements. And they were taught by various people who come from around the world who, um, who show these movements, and they enjoy them, and they're very good at them. And when I said to them, you know, um, movements are part, they're only part of the teaching. And I was told, that's news to us. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wow. Uh, hmm, how did that happen? But nevertheless, it did. And I, and, um, I, I believe I know how that happened, and I don't really want to talk about that. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's unfortunate. Movements <clears throat> are so extraordinary, and, um, and people don't really uh, receive what, they're, what um, that they could. Uh, they could receive the movements. And, and I do believe that it takes the movements down a notch, unfortunately. But... But it's the way that things are. I think Mr. Gajeev knew that as well. I think he knew that was what was going to happen. The work was going to become um, exoteric, kind of go out in the world and you know, become the church of the work or something. He knew that. He said that in um, Beelzebub's Tales. So <laughs> that's where we are. So, well, I have a... Uh a question about the teaching, you know, because it's, there's a, you've described a challenge of teaching the movements and being able to convey this deeper aspect of the, of the, the practice, this energetic aspect of the practice that not everyone seems to get. And, Related to that is this idea that it certainly has come to me when I read accounts of the movements in the early days with Gurdjieff teaching movements that he was more dynamic in terms of the application because a, a given movement might be appropriate for a person at a, a particular time because of what they were working with. 
just just like another form of uh, work might be appropriate for someone else at a given time because of what they were struggling with. And when a body of teaching suddenly becomes, in a sense, a shotgun, you know, it's like everyone's doing the same thing. That that specificity of what this individual needs and what that individual needs is is can be lost. And so the question about teaching is like, do you find in when you teach movements that you have to individuate it to a particular person's struggle? And there are things that might be different for one person than for another person. Um, so maybe I just leave it there and let you respond. Yes, of, of course. Um, in a class, for example, you, you would, um, well, I would, I don't know if, anyone else is how I was taught that um, in a particular class, for example, you choose, you might choose certain movements um, directed toward just one person, even in a class. Um, You might compose the whole class for that one person, for the struggle of that Mm. class. And so that's why as a, as a instructor, it's also very good to be a group leader yeah. or to um, to work with the people in your class or to have the group leaders come and watch the class and then discuss with you what uh, what people would need and then in <clears throat> class um, work the material to really help. And I, I think from what I see all over the internet, that there is often no understanding that certain movements are um, are for well, they're for different things. They're for different types, and I'm horrified when I see something like an entire class of women doing a man's men's dervish, and the movement is called men's dervish ceremony. And the class is all women. Well, why? Why why would you even do that? And some some movements are only for men. Some movements are only for women. Some movements are mixed. It's necessary for men and women. Some movements, parts of the movement in the choreography or configuration of the movement, um, men take certain uh, places, uh, files, women take other files, and that's for a reason. And I see that all mixed up in um, the movements classes that I see. There's obviously no understanding that this is intentionally done. Um, There's one movement which um, there should be the, the Odd files and men, even files and women, and that's and that there's an intention behind that. And that's done you know, the other way. Well, then you don't receive what the movement intends. So it's it's becoming a lost art. You know? Well, um, so my understanding from what you've been saying uh, today. Um, is that is that part of the way that a uh, that someone coming to the movements 
but it might be helpful to, for them to have the aim to to in a sense become a vessel for a high, for higher energies but of course that that must be even more true for someone who teaches the movements and and i'm wondering if that's if that's another aspect of this uh, diminishment that you that you are reporting throughout the conversation um, that those who those people who teach the movements have not <clears throat> excuse me made themselves available as a vessel for the direction of higher energies for the um, development of those people who are engaging who in the movements who they're teaching is that is that a a fair description oh, i i don't want to judge other um, instructors in that way because i'm sure everyone is very uh serious about their their what they do <clears throat> their intent it's an extraordinary narrowly difficult thing mm -hmm. to come in front of a class and to yourself to be present and to be available for the calling of anything higher. The many instructors, I'm, I'm sure most instructors wish that. Okay. Whether you're able to do it, that's another thing. And I uh, think everyone is sincere in the way they try, but um, it's it's extraordinarily difficult, and the the possibility for something extraordinary to happen in a class or doing a class is not only dependent on the person in front; it's dependent on the instructor, the pianist, the person at the piano, and the class itself. The attention of the class, the attention of the pianist. That's another aspect of movements that are, I think, what's out at the moment is being lost because the pianists, who, people who play for movement, are not trained. We used to be very, very trained. My mother was a brilliant pianist who was trained by Alfred Tigon to, um, to play four movements, and she, in her lifetime, gave many seminars to artists uh, worldwide to uh, train them how to play for movements, what their work is on the piano bench. When they're on the piano, they're not a tape recorder. They're not what you call the pianola. They're not a ballet class. They are um, a, a very, very important part of what's taking place in the room. They're supporting uh, everyone's work. They're not directing um, tempo from the piano or anything like that, which I've also seen. They are working with the instructor and the class for those three elements to come together to um, create a connection with the higher. It's very, very important what the pianists does in his work at the piano. Um, that's another, um, are there are a few people left worldwide that I know about who, who can um, uh, train people 
And I really like to see more of that happening. There are too many classes around the world who are using recordings. Mm. Uh, recordings, Gershom Brahms, um, uh, orchestrated recordings. That's not movements. You know, movements are alive, they're organic, they're at the, in the moment. Tempo varies ever so slightly according to um, attention, according to who is in the class, according to their capabilities, their ages. It's they're a living thing. Each class is a living experience as each um, each demonstration should be uh, a living experience. So it's a so it's a, a a mutual co-creation, and I'm glad I'm really glad you brought in the role of the pianist in in this way because a pianist who is manifesting presence can then adjust uh, creatively in the ways that you've just described, and I I, I hadn't ever thought about this that aspect at least in the depth that you've just uh, related here. So thank you for that. Absolutely. The musician is a pianist is a huge part of the class. <laughs> they can actually make or break a class in terms of, um, of vibration and atmosphere. Mm-hmm. The pianist is really attentive to the class when he's really underneath the class supporting his attention and the quality of his playing. Um, he can light up the room, or she. Uh, if not, if they're asleep at the piano, we're all asleep in the room. And it's nearly impossible to, to be any other way. So I have also huge respect for um, the people who put themselves on that piano because it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Not okay. only a Cracker Jack pianist, but you have to improvise, which is also very difficult. Yeah, and you have to improvise well. So it's a whole art and a whole, um, the music itself, playing for movements, understanding the movement's music, as well as what we call the listening music, is um, it's another very, very rich aspect of the work. That if you're lucky enough to be a pianist, um, a musician, there, there's... That it's open to you to um, study. It's what I'm hearing in this is a a law of three being enacted, where I presume it's the roles shift. But uh, as we were just talking, the instructor is sort of affirming the the class is sort of denying, and the pianist is reconciling. But I imagine that in the in this thing coming alive, that those roles probably shift around. Uh, um, I don't actually think they shift around. Um, as far as well, maybe as far as affirming, denying, but yes, for, yes, perhaps. In terms of you know, head, heart, and body, those relationships stay the same. Basically, the Instructor is the policeman, you know, start, yeah. uh, pastor, start. And the, the music is definitely the hard emotional quality. Some of the mu- music for movements is extraordinarily beautiful. And the way it corresponds to the movement is just that, for me, is, is 
love. I mean, with that, when you see how a movement comes alive with the music that was written for it, the, the movement is like a, a visual description of the, of the music. Mm-hmm. The representation of the music, they're so related. It's extraordinary. And the, the, the class is the body. And you need all three. You don't, if you don't have that, and you don't really have a movements class. You've got, I don't know what, good exercise class. <laughs> well, that, that certainly adds some dimension to the, your comment that uh, if people are doing a movements class to a recording of a pianist, it's not really a movements class. No, it's, you know, it's nice for them. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's the other um, word you use that is interesting to me is uh, the the head is the policeman, and this uh, for me one of the ways I've been relating to the conversation and the readings about the movement is through uh, my own study with a teacher of uh, a Japanese bamboo flute and it's an unusual relationship because this teacher is very focused. It's, it's not a fourth way background by any means, but his focus is on bringing something higher in. And there's a lot of body work of attention on the body in order to produce sound from the body. But one of the analogies that he's used quite a bit is that the, you know, you don't want the, brain trying to do things uh, but what it what it's useful is it's sort of like the policeman that it can go around and remind the body of things to do or, or for the body to put attention on things but it, it in and of itself can't do the body has to be the doing and when I try to do from my head like follow an instruction uh, it's very for me it can be very subtle to see this distinction for my teacher it's very obvious when I'm doing from my head as opposed to when I actually do from my body. And I'm interested in, you know, your, uh, your relationship to that, a distinction of doing from the head versus doing from the body in, in, in your experience with the movements. Well, you know, I, if I stand in front of the class and I look at the class and mostly what I see are large heads with, wheels turning inside and the wheels are going right foot, left foot, move right foot to the side, move left foot. It's all coming from the, the, the brain and, uh, and the poor body is screaming, just be quiet. <laughs> you know, I know how to walk, leave me alone. <laughs> and, uh, you know, trying to direct um, our feet with our brains. And, but the interesting thing then is if you let go of that and then you allow the body to move, you very, very quickly just get into mechanical, um, automatic, what we call automatic movement. And the body can do things brilliantly automatically by itself. And that's not the aim either. <laughs> the, um, the body doesn't need very much attention or 
for that matter, not a lot of sensation even to walk or stand or sit. It knows how to do that. And if we just leave the body to do that, then we're not connecting it. So what is the game of movements? And how do we work um, in a class? What are we trying to what are we trying to do? Because we're not trying to just put everything in the body so that the body um, <clears throat> at the same time we don't want to direct the body from our mind. So what are we trying to do? Are we trying to do? Is that the question? So, I mean, this gets back to um, what you said earlier, it seems to me, ab- about um, harmonizing the three centers and um, as, a, as the prerequisite to become the vessel that I was describing earlier for, um, for higher energies um, uh, to circulate in. Or at least that's, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Would, would, d- does that uh, uh, make sense, that formulation? Yes. What is the right role of the head? And we've been told a number of times that movements are for the mind. And that's a very curious thing to hear because we think, well, movements are for the body, surely. They're about moving. And Paul Bernard used to say, well, we call them movements, but sometimes there's not very much moving about them. It's from one static position to another static position without a connection between them. So if movements are for the mind, then what mind is being spoken about? There's, there's a mind in your brain, a mind in your head. There's a mind in your emotional life, and there's a mind in the body. So how do I connect these three minds? together so that each mind is thinking about what is its role, not the role of a different mind. And movements are extraordinary can be extraordinarily complicated. So Gajif gives you a movement like the multiplication number 18, which is called Mamakapa, and you've got a displacement on place and then you have a multiplication so you're exchanging rows um, you are describing the Enneagram, the shape of the Enneagram with your right arm when you advance in a multiplication and then you reverse the Enneagram which one hardly ever does and with your left arm you're marking a, a Morse code of the words mama and papa and then you're, you have a head movement that's going side to side. You're moving, you're bending uh, side to side, and you're in quarter turns. Um, it, I'm trying to think about, do you have a se- sequence of words in which you're saying canon? Don't think in that movement, but you do in many, in many movements. And you think, how could I possibly hold all these things? How could I even possibly do all these things and put all these things together? But interestingly enough, when you are able to connect these different minds, and not in a mechanical way, so that you just leave your body to do this thing, 
But when you're able to connect them on a certain level, not only are you able to put all those things together to do all those things, but you can also hear what the instructor is saying, notice that the pianist skipped a note, um, uh, see that you know you're you're a little bit out of line that somebody that you're going to need to adjust your next step in order to be a bit smaller in order to stay in relation to your row it's amazing how much room you have inside to see and to hear and to be present to what's taking place around you and it's extraordinary and then one sees what capacity we actually have and that we live in such a small world, this idea of, I mean, we live in the basement of a great mansion. And one can have an experience for a moment that, oh, I actually, I can actually be in a larger place inside me than I generally live in. This is, that's wonderful. Uh, thank you for that description. Yeah. Um, what, what, the question that arises um, or that arose for me just now in listening to that lovely description is the question of how the dancers, the, those participating in the movement, communicate, obviously not uh, verbally to each other in the way that we're doing now, with one another in this conversation, but how, how do they, how do dancers, I, you know, if there's, if there are higher energies circulating in the bodies of the dancers, what form and experience of communication is possible? You've, you just sketched a, a, uh, um, a wonderful picture of awakening to capacities that most people would dismiss. And so I'm wondering if there's a corresponding connection between dancers possible when the higher energies become present in circulation among the bodies in the movement? Yes. Movements are, if we think of them as an objective art, that they're an objective art, that means that everyone who participates at the same time experiences the same thing. So a big part of the work in movements is my attention, not only to myself and in my, my own body, but my attention to the people on either side of me, to the person in front of me and to the person behind me, so that I am, um, what William Walsh used to say, uh, I'm an independent part of an interdependent whole. So it's the working together of everyone in the class, the extension of our energy um, and our attention together, which begins to make this vibration. And that's why 
it's not possible to do movements over Zoom. And the answer to that is no, because it's not movements. <laughs> if you want to look at some positions and go over positions in order to correct them, to be understood, to understand what you're doing, sure. But the class, um, the class is what's important is the exchange um, of, of, of energy down across a row, across a row, down a file, um, and the way in which you work with people on either side of you. For example, um, I have to give up something, maybe of my own ego or my own personality, in order just to stay the same line level with people on either side of me. I can't manifest my personality, my ego in that kind of way, or nothing is possible for any of us. So it's this very intensive work of um, togetherness that creates something. Maybe I have to let go of something inside um, in order to be exactly in Set the time with the person beside me, maybe we're lifting our arms up and down and up and down. And I think the person beside me is just getting here too soon. And why is he not doing it the way I'm doing it? Because I'm much better. And <laughs> I have the right time, of course. Um, but if I let go of that, and if I start to be interested in how can I be on time with this person beside me, how can I relate to this person beside me? Then something starts to take place. Something is felt. And then often the person beside me says, oh, she's trying to be the same time as me. And then they're willing to let go of something. And then before you know it, our arms are coming up and going down exactly together because we have both um, let go of something that was not necessary. And it's this very delicate work through the class. It's a shared, um, it's a shared experience of this vibration that makes the movement come alive. It's so it's a working together. You don't do movements you know, by yourself. Can't so, do movements by yourself. So what I hear you describing uh, suggests that the the movement in itself is like a, uh, its own kind of being and the, when everyone is aligned and everyone is doing it, uh, getting out of the way that suddenly this being can inhabit this, this space of all of these bodies and the musician and the leader together. And that something higher truly is coming down because it's almost as though an angelic form as a body on earth in order to, uh, emanate. Yes, but <clears throat> it's it's a matter of um, your attention and your ability to um, it would be a good way to say it. All right, I'll put it another way. You see classes that are militaristically perfect. 
their rows are perfect. They take the same step forward and back and, um, you know, arms raised to the same height and all that. And it's not just that. It's not just um, submitting um, to a, um, a condition. Uh, it's, it comes from an inner wish to be related. Mm-hmm. So there's, there, just because you're militarily perfect doesn't mean that the movement is going to vibrate. Quite the contrary, actually. And that it's going to appear because there's and there's how to say if I really extend myself to the people on either side of me and we're, we're trying to do the same motion and we're all doing it a little bit differently because we move differently we're different ages we're different as a man and a woman or whatever we're different if I really try to relate then then with my with my attention from my mind with my sensation then emotion can appear then my emotional life can appear and then there becomes a real joy in being with the other people and relating with the other people and participating in something together there is an extraordinarily wonderful joy in that being together. And um, if I have to adjust something, if I have to, um, you know, make some compensation for someone else beside me, I'm happy to do that because there's this emotional um, element which has appeared. That's what makes the movement come alive, and that's what makes the movement appear. And that's actually rare. One one is in front of a movements class for a long time, and it's a lot of people trying to enact a movement, and that's all it is. But occasionally, when there's this connection between people, when they're bringing their attention, attention becomes very acute. When they, when they're really listening to the music, and the musician is really on time with the class. They're they're all trying to be in the same vibration. Suddenly, something happens in the in the room. The movement appears. It just appears like something. Like you focus the you know the buttons on your television screen or something the, the, the folk, it focuses and suddenly there's a movement in front of you and it can stay shining, shimmering for a few seconds <laughs> and then disappears and then you have to keep working that was um, uh, that was lovely as well and um, uh, I was really struck by your phrase, an inner wish to be related. And what uh, the question that, that arises then, uh, because you said earlier, and, and, and my understanding in general, is that uh, people don't do movements just to do movements and then leave and live a life unaffected by having engaged with the movements. Um, I'm wondering 
if you can speak to how the inner wish to be related to others or the inner wish to be related to something greater um, is something that, that one can take from the engagement with the movements into daily life. Yes, and I think that's why people come to movements, even if they're only engaged in a situation where they just do movements and they're, they don't even know that there are other why they come to movements is because there's an element, just an ordinary element of, of working together and being part of uh, something larger, even on our level, even at our own level, which also appears, I mean, as a dancer, there's nothing more joyous than to be, um, to dance in a core, like a corps de ballet or something, where you're, where you're really working with the other people to produce a beautiful visual effect. Um, there's a joy in that. And the movements, if anything, provide that. And um, I think that fills people um, to the extent that they come for years and they're very serious about it. Um, I'm... Is, is there any harm in that? No. But unfortunately, that they, you know, it's, it's sort of like going to, you know, grade one when you really want a PhD. <laughs> Well, the the uh, the analogy I'll offer is um, in in our conversations in in this podcast. Sometimes guests say that say there say there's a book that we're discussing that the that an author has written and um, and basically they are regurgitating the. Um, the uh, uh, bullet points from the book. And there's really not much energy exchange between uh, Stuart and I and, and such a guest. And then there are guests who understand how to listen and respond creatively. Um, and, I, and I relate that to this inner wish to be related. I think that's a, that's a requirement for something new to emerge in the conversation. And, and, and so it strikes me that that, that too could be an understanding of how to move, not just with the body after leaving the movement hall, but also to move emotionally with others, etc. Is that does that resonate for you? Yes, yes, very much. I think if one can have an experience in movements of the idea that we are all connected, we're all in the same vibration, we're all a very small part of uh, something much larger, that we can begin to have some compassion for our fellow human beings that we're all in this um, 
Ganesh, as Gajeev said. And um, we need to feel for each other because it's very, very difficult to live this life. It's difficult to, what's the word, to uh, develop and rise to a higher level. And we need all the help we can get. And we need each other because I can't do it by myself. It's just, it's not possible. And even why would I want to do it by myself? And the, the movements, I think, in many ways help that. It can bond you in a way that really nothing else does because of this idea that, um, that I'm a small part. We're all a small part. And we don't know. That's what strikes me often in, in, in movements. And here I'm in a position of trying to pass on something that's been so lovingly um, uh, given to me. And um, I feel such a strong responsibility to, to, um, to pass it on and to keep it alive. And, and I need, <laughs> you know, I need everyone else because everyone contributes in a, like this exchange, for example, and contributes to my search and to my um, understanding of what it is that I'm trying to do. So I think movements are a big help for that because... They are so extraordinary, and they're on such a level that's so much higher than all of us that it does trigger some um, some wish to be um, related to everyone in my ordinary life because I because I learn something from everyone and in my ordinary life, and I learn that in movements class. So I'm interested now with the challenge that you've described. What, what have you seen as uh, possibilities for revitalizing the movements uh, as they're popularly understood? How do you, how do you take this understanding back into the world and in a way that it can fulfill that that this very clear mission that you've described I don't know Stuart (laughs) (laughs) Uh, that's the question isn't it I right now personally I'm really only interested in working with people who are in the the engaged in the whole of the work I, mm-hmm. I, I cannot I don't have the conscience to teach people who only want to learn movements um, oh I shouldn't have used the word teach because I'm never allowed to use the word teach we don't teach anything we, um, we, we maybe assist but we're, we're all we're all open to be taught uh, I I can only seriously, for the amount of time that I have left, because I'm not that young anymore, um, work with people who 
in some way want to understand how the, the movements relate to the rest of the teaching and how um, and how in a way that can be it's going to say preserve preserves maybe not the right word but how it can be nurtured and and I really you know I would just love to go around the world and to go to these places where there's 80 people in a class doing a movement brilliantly and completely empty <laughs> and go in and say alright there's something missing here <laughs> let's see if we can add it which was a little bit of my experience in Moscow um, they when I saw them, I was so touched by how good they were and the way they move. But certain positions were really off, not the right, not the correct positions at all. And just changing a few positions to to what I understand as the authentic ones and the ones that I positions I received was close to as from Rajiv as anyone could nowadays. And it immediately changed something. It immediately changed something for them. And they said, oh, this is different. This is, oh, this is really different. And um, many people were really emotionally touched. And it would be lovely to go around the world and bring that. But there's, you know, not enough time and not enough. Yeah. energy to do that and so those movements that that is as it is and movements are going they're out in the world now that you can get notes from movements not that you could reproduce a movement properly from notes but that is as it is and i'm interested in working with people who are serious about connecting their work and the work their work with ideas because ideas are not my forte <laughs> um, that's why, you know, Stephen Aronson and I, you know, been interested in working together because we're completely different and we bring two completely different aspects. And that's what I'm interested in doing now. I'm working with people wish to. Um, I'm training some people to instruct movements. Um, Unfortunately, not enough people, as I said earlier on, are getting training. Mm-hmm. There's very specific ways to instruct a movement, how you can bring it, what you can do in front of a class, how can we really help people. Like any art form, there's, there's, there's training. In it. So, so uh, th- uh, I mean that 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 last aspect that you mentioned of 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 helping people to become effective um, facilitators for for movements strikes me as important. But but I'm wondering if you um, if if in so doing the um, to get back to the uh, the reception, oh, the the creation of a context within which higher energies can enter, if that is the um, uh, in some ways maybe the maybe the important crucial element 
that you can help both groups and uh, and um, instructors in training, if you will, um, that that you can assist with. Yes, because you know we're not interested in setting up a you know teacher training academy so people know how to teach movements and then uh, you know then go out and do that because it's much more complex than that. Mm-hmm. And it's more, and it is related to how one understands the work in general and how one works. And of course, the the, the dancers in the class or the people working in the class um, also need to be interested in uh, their own personal growth in right. Complete way. Otherwise, what is one doing when it's just passing on an effective way to get movements taught? That's not. That's not what we're interested. Certainly, not what I'm interested in. I I think uh, one one area that occurred to me was when I watched the the grainy old. The Saltzman video that uh, you sent me the link to that found its way onto YouTube. I was struck that despite the, you know, poor quality by modern standards of the uh, uh, recording, that there was something there that came across that touched me at a different level than the aesthetic level or the you know, the mind of seeing these dances, there was a, there was a feeling of the group in the way that the group was together with the music that left an impression. And so I, I guess it, it raises a question for me of whether there's an opportunity for more media creations that actually show a group of people who are committed to this kind of work engaged in these movements such that it just conveys an energy or transmits an energy for those who might be receptive to hearing that just to give them the sense that there is something to be a part of or something to explore that may be different than what they've encountered in their lives. Well, you, you've just opened a Pandora's box because, you know, you refer to the nature of a film that's on YouTube. And Madame Salzman made, I believe, seven. Some people say nine, but I think it's seven. Films about movements, and they're extraordinarily beautifully filmed, well filmed. They're filmed by professional um, uh, cinematographers, uh, Jean-Claude Luchansky uh, was involved um, um, there and there. They were made for a full screen in a theater. And they are, um, they're, they're beautifully filmed. And they were shown, uh, I think the first film was 1951, um, two years after Brigitte passed. So that film has extraordinary um, energy in it. You can you can feel the intensity of the energy. Everyone in the class is quite young at the time. And, um, the, the expressions 
extraordinary. And that's something that's really been lost over the years. The character of the, the movements is being lost. Um, what the movement represents is being lost because they're all getting a little bit, um, what was the word, diluted, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And these films, as far as I'm concerned, are Mandelstam's films are the films that sh- they're the only um, films that show quality of work. And but um, she, you know, she's worked with these people, worked with these people for a very long time. And this is, is her Paris class in London, and a few people from other places, and part of her aim was to see whether something of a quality of attention could be transmitted through film. So she wasn't so concerned that the films were a, an archive of um, material, but that something could be transmitted. And there's no question that it is transmitted through these films. Now, the problem is that um, the foundation, the New York Foundation, has had these films, or the Paris Foundation, has had these films under lock and key, and they are um, reticent to um, release them to the public, or to show them in theaters in the public anymore. Um, it used to be my time and my parents' time in the 50s and the 60s and 70s, they were shown in theaters um, to attract people who were interested, who might be interested, because when you saw these films, there was definitely a sensation that there was something extraordinary there, and people came to the work because of that. Nowadays, as there, there's more and more I think what happened first was that um, there, the, there was a, certainly a film that was taken to China and it was bootlegged in a theater. Somebody had a camcorder and uh, recorded the film and then put it up on the internet. And so in a way, then, you know, Pandora's box got open. So what we're seeing on the internet, and even though there are two films now on the internet, and there are copies of the copies of copies of copies. Mm-hmm. They're so dark, you can't even see what their feet are doing at all. And um, the original films, of course, you, <laughs> they're beautiful, you see everything. So um, that, if there was some way that the, the foundations would be generous enough to um, allow these films to be shown in theaters, I think it would be extraordinary. But their fear is that um, this is what happens. Um, And many people have been, um, what's the word? Stealing, I suppose, would be the word. Movements on a film um, and try reproducing them and then teaching them. Um, and maybe I will give them the benefit. Maybe they don't realize that there is actually um, that there is actually a, 
a way to <laughs> be taught movements, a way for movements to be handed down, that there really is, there really are people who can um, do this. Maybe they don't know that. They think the only way to, to get these movements is to copy one of these films. Um, maybe. So now what we have on the on all over the internet and even in live demonstrations is um, the, the classes where people who have learned movements from someone who learned I don't know where. Um, they're not even in groups, but they learned movements somehow or somewhere. And then they teach people, and then they make costumes, and then they have demonstrations. And, you know, so the last thing we need is any more movements demonstrations or any more, you know, films of classes doing movements on the Internet. Um, can... If even you could film um, even if you could film a moment of sustained attention in the same way that Madame's films are able to show, but Madame was there. Mm-hmm. Madame raised everyone up. Um, you know, she raised everyone up. She held the quality up. They filmed it while she held everybody up. And um, and when it was over, you know, I had an extraordinary, a film of an extraordinary um, level of being. But many people in the class, you know, who are my peers, they say they don't even remember doing any of these movements. Um, so there's a big question there. And, um, even a very, very good class that's well trained and been doing movements for a very long time, if you film them, can that quality of vibration from a higher place be captured, be, be seen? I don't know. It's a good question. Well, that's, uh, yes, it is a, uh, an interesting question. And I appreciate, I appreciate the comment and the, the challenge that the movements face as a, you know, as we move into the future, we are, we've moved into the future of our, uh, uh, <laughs> time here. So, um, unfortunately we, we need to, bring things to a close here, but we want to just really express our appreciation for the time you've taken to really share your, this, this deep, deep, deep experience and this, uh, legacy that you, you, you are truly a holder of. And, and, and the, your skill in articulating something that will, um, I hope evoke in some listeners, uh, a, um, an appreciation that they may not previously have had access to. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Thank you for the conversation. It's been very, uh, very interesting. I appreciate the exchange. Thank you.
Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Mystical Positivist. You have been listening to The Mystical Positivist. This is your host, Stuart Goodnick. This week on the show, we featured a pre-recorded conversation with Fiona Denzi, a longtime practitioner and teacher of the Gurdjieff movements. Born into the work, Ms. Denzi's parents were founding members of the Gurdjieff Foundation of Toronto, Society for Arts and Ideas. At an early age, she was introduced to the Gurdjieff movements and received direct training from Mr. Gurdjieff's designated movements teachers, Alfred Etjevan and Jesmyn Howarth. Ms. Denzi has over 50 years of experience in the direct communication of Mr. Gurdjieff's movements. Next week on The Mystical Positivist, we feature a pre-recorded conversation with Zimbabwean healer Mandaza Augustine Kandemwa. Mandaza is a spirit medium and medicine man from Bulawayo, Zimbabwe. In Shona, his native tongue, he is known as a Mohindora, Svakiro, and Gombwa. He was initiated through the tradition of the Injuzu, the water spirits. Mendaza carries with him in his heart the Central African spiritual traditions of healing and peacemaking. He is known internationally for his loving presence and for his preservation of the old ways. He stands for truth, love, justice, and peace in this world. Join us for that show on Saturday, July 10th at 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time. Thank you for joining us once again for The Mystical Positivist. Podcasts of all our shows can be found at www.mysticalpositivist.blogspot.com as well as commentary and discussion of topics of interest to the show. Also, please send comments and feedback to mysticalpositivist at gmail.com. Join us again next Saturday. <laughs>